One of the biggest attributes any entrepreneur needs is to have the ability to problem solve, to be able to identify challenges large and small and effectively produce a solution for them. It seems simple, but it's not. A vast number of startups, they fail. And the reason is they identified and addressed an issue, but it's not the right issue. So how do you know when the problem your company is attempting to solve is the right one? Meet Paul English, founder and CTO of Moonbeam. He has some noteworthy advice. My advice to other entrepreneurs when they ask, when should they go for it? When should they quit their day job to go work on their new idea? When you have an idea, a problem that you want to solve, and the problem is more important than the solution, because most tech companies don't fail because the programs couldn't write good code. Most tech companies fail because they solved a problem that no one cares about. And so what's most important is you solving a big problem. Paul has had a prolific career as a founder and with all the highs and lows you would expect. But for Paul, the thrill of the next big idea and the next adventure is what keeps him going. And his success has been rooted in his ability to understand the big issues and develop and implement a plan to rectify them. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Paul goes into detail about that skill and he explains why Moonbeam, his new company, is solving one of the biggest pain points in on-demand programming. Plus, Paul dives into his past experiences, details key pillars that make up a successful CTO, and predicts why Moonbeam is about to take off. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a special guest. We have Paul English. I got to read it from your website because it does it so well. Paul English is a Boston-based entrepreneur and activist. He's the co-founder of companies like Lola, Kayak, Junkie, Get Human, Boston Light, Intermute. So Kayak being the biggest of those names, but... You are a multi-time entrepreneur, and you're actually here to talk about another thing called Moonbeam. Welcome to the show, Paul. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks, Albert. All right, Paul. Before we get too deep into this conversation, we got to ask right out the gate, It's you're listed as CTO and co-founder for a lot of these companies. Did you actually develop the code? Uh, it's funny. It, so Kayak was the last time I coded, and I'm embarrassed to admit that by the end, I think all of my code had been replaced. <laughs> hey, you got to get started somewhere, right? <laughs> I coded. I think I coded just for the first year. I was, um, I mean, I'm a 30-year tech veteran, and I have written enormous amounts of code in multiple languages over the years. But by the time I got into Kayak, I was mostly writing um, Perl scripts to debug, kind of doing data analysis, um, and some Python at the end. So... One of the things that I always we like talking to serial entrepreneurs about, especially on the tech side, is you know a lot of times there's this idea that there's like a level of satisfaction that potentially happens if you have a successful exit where the next thing isn't as big. But you seem to be like ascending. I feel like every time you come out of a company, like it gets bigger and bigger. Tell me what keeps you hungry. What keeps you interested in constantly building companies for you personally? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to be doing companies till I'm 90. Maybe I'll retire at age 90. But um, it's the most fun I can imagine. I mean, I love my job as a CTO because one, you need to you got to recruit like really great engineers and designers and product people to work for you. 
And two, you try to create products that are magical. And with each one of my projects, I try to create software which is a little bit simpler than the software I created previously. I used to work for Scott Cook at Intuit, and he had a saying once that um, it's very easy to build complicated software. Yeah. And of course, what he means there is there's probably only you know one out of a hundred thousand engineers who have the intellectual stamina to build something which is simple. And I strive for simplicity. And we did a pretty good job at Kayak. I think we've done a better job at Lola. And um, with each one of my projects, I'm just really obsessed with making sure it looks really clean and beautiful. I'm a big fan of typography and careful use of colors, very nice palettes, and just make things as obvious as possible. So I just love that design challenge. So are you more interested for you personally? Are you more interested in the front end design and engineering or are you more interested in the back end design and engineering? Because you mentioned some of the things you mentioned are the front end. But like so part of what makes software so amazingly simple is the fact that its back end is almost thinking for the user. You know what I mean? Where you've coded it in a way where the user has to put the least amount of variables and inputs in to get the right outputs back. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's certainly true of machine learning and AI where the code is writing code and it's generating algorithms and it's doing sort of Herculean tasks behind the scenes to try to make things as simple as possible. So that next click is the right click. It shows you the right content immediately and it anticipates what you want. So I do think having hardcore server engineers on the back end to try to serve up exactly the right data at the right moment lends itself to then having a front end team who can build something which is really pretty and serves that information coming from the back end team. So I've done a bit of both. When I look at my job as a CTO, I think of a CTO as having three functions. So one is engineering, which is the thing that we're most known for. And you know, 95% of CTOs, if not 99% started as engineers. That's how I started. And then the next function is design. And that's an area that I'm obsessed with. I'm a bit OCD with layout and alignment and typography. So I love design. And then the third thing is product, product management. And if I look at Lola, which is my day job right now, we do business travel and expense. I probably spend most of my time on product and design. And I'm really lucky that I have two incredible tech leaders, a chief architect, VP of engineering. They do all the hard stuff and making everything work. I do all the things like make unreasonable requests and ask them <laughs> to do things which they first say are impossible. And I get very, um, not demanding. I mean, I think I'm a good person to work with. I think people enjoy work with me, but when there's something I really want that I get hungry for and the, from a user experience standpoint, I tend to not let go until we can find a way to deliver it. There is that commonality of tenacity among some of the great founders that we that we read about, right? Where they're just not willing to budge on specific things. When you think to yourself, where do you tend to focus on? And it sounds like this re- relentless simplicity. Do you, how, how do you, I guess, foster an environment where people, you know, you've told them like, hey, this is what I want. They come back and push back and said, hey, it's not possible. How do you foster this, I guess, a culture or a methodology, work methodology where you can convince your engineers like, hey, I need you to try one more time to see if it can work. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, I literally just got off a call with a young CEO who was asking me advice about how to push his engineers harder. And I said, you know, in most cases, it's not that engineers are lazy, are they not putting enough hours? It's just you need to get them to 
rise to the challenge of doing things which seem hard to do. And my big technique, you know, I hope my engineers aren't listening to this podcast. They probably are because <laughs> it's such a popular show. But um, my big technique to get engineers to do something really difficult is don't ever ask them if it's possible. Don't go to an engineer and say, do you think it's possible to build something to get flight results back in half a second? It's kind of like when you have children, you don't ask your children, do you want to do something? Because if the kid can say yes or no, they often say no. Mm-hmm. And engineers are like children. I mean, we all have childlike and in, in, in hopefully in good ways. But so what I do, rather than ask my engineers questions with a yes, no answer, like, can you build this? I'll say, if we made it a requirement to serve flight results in one second, what are the things we could do to make that happen? So you ask them how, not if. Yeah. And that stimulates their creative juices. And then they start thinking about, like, I'll say to them, what if you... What if I gave you a million dollar budget for hardware? Like, tell me what you want. If I want results in one second, tell me what you want to make that happen. Do you want a hundred engineers? Like, do you want bigger machines? Do you want more memory in your machines? Do you want to switch to a faster language? But um, ask the engineers how and not if or, yeah, how not if. No, I like that because then you can, I remember talking and working at a software company and asking, we would do this common things where we would say, Hey, you know, instead of saying, in this case, we were building like a WYSIWYG builder. They threw their hands up like, ah, oh, no, I can't do that. It's like, how easy, how would you make it so that you could add a button to a stage and it becomes part of the graphical interface and then we can link it somewhere. And they're like, Oh, that's pretty easy. You can do that. Oh, interesting. How, how yeah. easy it is to select from a photo gallery, upload it to a media library and make a recall to it so that the asset can change pictures. Oh, that'd be pretty easy. Right. We would ask. And then before you knew it, we had asked for an app builder. But had we said, like, to your point, hey, build me a machine that can make other apps. They were like, oh, no, it's too much. Too many variables. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) uh, I've often been accused. Some people who haven't worked with me before, when they first start working with me, I've heard a couple of people say, Paul doesn't seem very strategic because I don't always talk about all 10 steps in front of us. I tend to be someone that I think of myself as a rapid sequential thinker. So it's like, I have a long-term plan for what I crave from a usability standpoint in the product and what features I think we need to distinguish ourselves from a PR positioning standpoint. But I'll always ask engineers for the next thing we need to build and then do the best possible job of that next thing and crush it. And then once you're done with that, then do the next and the next and the next. And it's not that people don't have a roadmap for knowing where you go, but I really like focusing on crushing the task at hand and then doing the next one, the next one after that. So then how would you describe your, like, if we look at the companies you've been part of, they're all kind of in different areas. How do you select? Because you have the technical chops, it sounds like, to tackle many different challenges. How did you choose each and every, like, domain, I guess, is the right word. How did you choose to tackle each domain? Was it that you found a problem that you personally wanted to solve? Did you find an opportunity? How did you go about Because like you've been in customer service, e-commerce, you've been in uh, ad, removing ads, obviously travel, now travel expenses. Each one of these things, they're not really related to the other. Yeah. I think most of my companies, I could go over each company quick, one at a time, like 10 seconds each. Um, Each one did come from a personal problem, like something that frustrated me. And sometimes it takes a while for me. It's something needs to like bother me a lot until I jump on it. Let me see. So Boston Light was a company. We made a product called QShop. We ended up selling it to Intuit, where I served as VP technology. But the motivation for QShop was 
One of my friends, a guy named Bob Treitman, ran a bookstore in Boston named SoftPro. And back when Amazon was really starting to take off late 90s, he was nervous. They're going to put him out of business. And so we started thinking about, could we make something that would give a small business owner, a sole proprietor, a tool which built a website which was as good as the big companies? And so that was the whole uh, origin of, of QShop was, can we build a really quick way to build a shopping site based on a friend of mine having a problem and me trying to solve that for him. For Intermute, the company I started with my brother, Ed English, we focus on security and privacy. It started with an ad blocking product called Ad Subtract. And then one of the things that I have always been obsessed with is the elimination of junk email. I get about 400 emails a day. <laughs> I'm involved in many projects. And the only way I can stay sane is if random salespeople don't find my inbox. <laughs> so I designed a spam product, which worked quite well uh, for me back then. And we again, we that was a successful exit to Trend Micro. Um, Kayak, Kayak was actually my co-founder's idea, Steve Hafner. He was one of the founders of Orbitz. And he founded Orbitz that 70% of the people would do a flight search. When they found the flight they wanted, they would leave Orbitz, go directly to United.com and buy that flight. So Steve said, why can't we Instead of selling anything at Kayak, why don't we just do a search engine, except we get paid when they click to leave to go to United. That was the original idea. That was his idea that I jumped on immediately. And in that one, I remember the first day I met Steve, I went that night and used Expedia for a while, not long, maybe 15 minutes, because they were the market leader at the time. And I thought, this isn't going to be hard to beat these guys, because I saw this software just really bloated and slow and epileptic seizure inducing with the amount of colors and graphics. And so I thought I'd create something simple than that. Um, Get Human, this is a customer service company. And this was founded based on an experience my dad had. He was, at this point, he was in his 70s and he was early stage Alzheimer's and had trouble making phone calls because he was starting to have a little bit of cognitive difficulty. But he would call his phone company or his bank and ask them a question. And he didn't realize it was a machine talking to him, press one, press two, mm -hmm. and he didn't know how to deal with the machine. And that out of, out of frustration in me trying to help him, I created something initially called the IVR cheat sheet, which is tricks for getting beyond the IVR, so getting to human really, really quickly. And then we renamed it to Get Human, and we've now served customer service information to over 200 million people. So, um, sorry, 20 million people, not 200 million, 20 million people have used Get Human. And then Lola, that one came out of experience where I have been very lucky to have really great executive assistant to help me with my travel. And I wanted everyone to have that experience because a lot of times, even if you have a nice website like Kayak, sometimes you know, like I need to go visit PayPal on Monday and I need to go visit Amazon on Tuesday. And you just say that to your assistant and a great assistant will figure out where they are and book everything for you. And I wanted everyone to have that experience from a business travel standpoint. So each of those companies got born out of either a problem that I had or one of my friends had. And then for the opportunity for you to say, hey, I want to focus in on it, like the Get Human one, I completely understand. What dove you into each one of these? Is it the op Was it more the opportunity or was it more just the desire to solve a problem? Yeah. So my trick with my advice to other entrepreneurs when they ask, you know, when should they go for it? Like when should they quit their day job to go work on their new idea? is simply when you have an idea, a problem that you want to solve, and the problem is more important than the solution because most tech companies don't fail because the programs couldn't write good code. Most tech companies fail 
because they solved a problem that no one cares about. Yeah. And so what's most important is you're solving a big problem. Once you've identified a problem, you need to go pitch that to people, pitch it to friends, pitch it to investors, pitch it to customers. When people start saying they want to work on it, like friends want to work on this, help you work on it for free, like they don't need any salary at all. They're so excited that they're going to work on it. That's starting to signal to you that you might be onto something here. So I would always say, try to get free labor as step one and to get some really amazing people to help you. And once you have that critical mass of then you're, instead of a sole entrepreneur, now you're two people or three people or five people building that team. That's what makes your reality. It's the team. So that's step one for the entrepreneurs. Can you establish that founding team around you? Yeah, I love that because when, you know, the first part you talked about, which was how big of a problem are you actually trying to solve? I remember when I first tried to build my first app and asking different people, which I thought were going to be my core customers if they were, if they would like it. It was a pricing app. They didn't really show great reaction. I justified it as, oh, they don't understand. But looking back on it, I should have been like, oh, they were lukewarm, which means they're not fanatical, which means this is already doomed to fail. Like it's not interesting enough. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. (laughs) Which brings us now, because you're also doing something else, which brings us to, you know, today's episode, you're working on another project called Moonbeam. What's Moonbeam? So Moonbeam is a podcast player. And what we're trying to do is I'm obsessed with podcasts. I listen to podcasts every night. I listen to them on my commute, which I'm not really commuting these days in the age of COVID, but I have a place in New York. So I travel, I spend a lot of time going between Boston and New York and I just listen to podcasts uh, for that drive. And I wanted to solve a couple problems in particular. One is how do you find that next hot podcast? How do you find something interesting? Because there's a million podcasts out there. Yep. How do you find the really good ones? So the whole discovery problem, I'll talk about that in a second. And then the second thing I wanted to solve is if I'm really inspired by a podcast host, by something they said in a show, I want to interact with that host. Like I want to be able to to have discussions with them. I want to be able to send them tips. So like Moonbeam has a tip button. You just click the button and you can send a dollar or $10 or whatever to a host who inspires you, a story that inspires you. And it's those two problems that led me to founding Moonbeam. So again, it's the discovery which I can tell you our secret sauce, what we're doing there. And then the opportunity to interact with the host of the podcasts. Yeah, let's dive right into it. Because obviously we at Mission have some domain experience in podcasting. And we are very familiar with the discovery problem. It is quite challenging. The players themselves, I would say they pretty much are like the old way of, I don't know, the way search engines used to operate when they first started, they're more about frequency. So if you're typing in keywords, if the keyword is quite frequent in the description and the title, it kind of shows up to the top for many of these players, um, which makes it tough because it often will find content that let's say is not quite what you want. Uh, We know that modern search is much more sophisticated than that. So let's start there on that discoverability. How do you, how does, how does, how do you approach discoverability when it comes to podcasts? So you were remarking earlier that if you have really great server engineers and they can deliver the right information, the job of the front-end engineers is pretty easy because yeah. the server guys deliver the right answer. So when we designed the first version of Lola for business travel, I challenged my engineers to say, what if someone said, I want to travel to Kansas City, and we just showed them one hotel, and that was it. And my engineers said, they're not going to trust us. 
And I said, but what if we're really good? Like, what if we know everything about them and we can say, trust us, this is the hotel you're going to like. To me, that's the ultimate experience because that's what an executive assistant does. They know you really well. They don't have to show you 10 hotels. They book a hotel for their experience. So we're trying to do that for podcasts. What we want to do is have a machine learning system that observes your behaviors. And I'll describe in a minute uh, in machine learning, there's a term called features, which are the behaviors that feed into the uh, algorithm. And so we have a number of features we track of how you use the product. And we're trying to predict for you what shows you're going to like. And we do this by clustering users like you. So if we notice there's 10 shows you like in particular, that you've interacted with those hosts, you've tipped them, you've favorited it, you've commented on it, you've shared it, uh, you've listened to the whole thing beginning to end. We then find other users who have similar listening behaviors to you. And they're not necessarily your friends. There's some people building social podcast apps which say you should listen to what your friends listen to. And there's some value in that, in that it gives you a common thing to talk to your friends about if you both listen to the same shows. But what really good machine learning platforms have discovered is there are strangers out there who have tastes very, very similar to yours, even more so than your best friends. And so we're trying to identify that. So it's based on how you interact with the player as it's playing. We're observing these features and these interactions. We're finding other users who have liked the same shows you like, and we're showing what they like. We do have some explicit filtering. So there's implicit and explicit filtering. Implicit means we just observe your behaviors and we source up content to you. Explicit is you can say things in Moonbeam like, I want to listen to comedy. You can even say things like, I don't want to listen to any podcast that mentioned Donald Trump. Like, I'm, I'm so done with him. I don't want him in my media feed anymore. So you can tell us what you want to avoid. You can tell us what topics you're interested in. But the UI, it's actually, when you look at Moonbeam, and right now, if you go to the website, it's moonbeam.fm. There's simply a sign-up page where yep. people can sign up to be notified when the app comes out. It's coming out imminently. When Moonbeam comes out, one of the things you're going to notice is the discovery portion looks a lot like TikTok. And the reason is I think TikTok has done an extraordinary job of user clustering and taking sort of micro interactions, finding users who interact with, in their case, they're doing video discovery, we're doing audio discovery, but we're watching how you're interacting with the shows. We find other people who interact with shows the same way as you do, and we source content to you. Another filter we have, we do, so implicit and explicit. Another explicit filter is if you want to, you can say to us, I just want to listen to a 10-minute show because I'm walking to work and I have a 10-minute walk, if you're lucky. Um, or I want to listen to something obscure. So go sort of deep tracks, right? In the um, music industry, we talk about deep tracks. Sometimes you want to find something. It's not necessarily a top 10 podcast because you don't need a discovery app to tell you about this American life. Like we all know about this American life. We know about it. I don't need Moonbeam to teach you about that show. I want Moonbeam to teach you about shows you might not have heard about. So we're trying to surface those shows which match your interest, which match people like you, and you might not have found on your own. And like TikTok, they have the simple swipe. If you don't like it, you just swipe, go to the next, the next, and the next. You can do that with Moomin as well. If you don't like the show, just swipe up. We'll play something again, again, and again. And the more you use it, the better it's going to get at nailing exactly the types of shows you're interested in. So this is really fascinating stuff for me. I do have a question. What about the ability to, for some users or listeners, because this is how I behave. 
I would say I'm very subject oriented rather than host oriented. I tend to follow and listen to subjects. I actually don't subscribe to any specific podcast, but I do listen to podcasts. You, you, it's a weird, it's, I think I'm, I don't know, am I more common, uncommon, or do you see more people just gravitating towards affinity towards a show? Or do you think there's a lot of listeners that are like me that are more subject oriented? And if they are subject oriented, is that something Moonbeam will try to solve for? Yeah. So if I look at my own habits and I am guilty sometimes of designing products for me yeah, because <laughs> I'm very familiar with what I want. Um, but hopefully the best designers don't design products just for themselves. They talk, they talk to other people. I agree with you. I think you've nailed it that there are two fundamental discovery ways. Either there's a host that you really like and you enjoy their shows. So you want to follow them or there's a topic. And if you look at Twitter or Instagram, for example, on Instagram, you can follow a hashtag. So it allows you, so one of my hobbies, and I have a, a website for this, is a Chinese game called Shang-Chi. It's a Chinese version of chess. And I follow the hashtag Shang-Chi on Instagram, means if anyone posts something Shang-Chi related, it shows up my Instagram feed. So we're going to do the same thing on Moonbeam, that you can follow a show or you can subscribe to a, to a topic. You know, if you like Tom Brady, you can follow shows that talk about Tom Brady. If you don't like Tom Brady, you can hide Tom Brady. Um, you can follow whatever topic you want. And then what do you, what is it to say about us as a people that this swipe concept, cause I remember the first time I saw Flipboard, I thought to myself, that's annoying. I, I would never want to read something like that because Flipboard, uh, for those who have never used it, you can only see one article at a time. You have to literally action the article. You have to flip to see the next one. Then I remember Tinder came out and I was like, oh man, this is, it's exactly Flipboard, but people enjoy it. They like looking at each profile. TikTok does a similar concept. So this, isn't, this has been around now. What is it about that swipe action that you think or that interaction that people need that makes it more, dis that enables better discovery than it is like to provide, let's say, like Google does, a giant list of stuff? So there's two types of signals at a really high level that machine learning algorithms use. They use positive signals and negative signals. A swipe is a negative signal. And many times, like at Kayak, we used to, we actually, at our list of hotel results, at one point we had a little X. It is a hotel in particular that you really hated. Like if, like for example, I don't like Holiday Inns. If I can click on that, I'm telling Kai, don't ever show me a hotel like that hotel again. <laughs> and swiping in TikTok is if you see a video and you don't like it, you swipe it really quickly, you're sending a negative signal to the machine learning to say, there's something about this type of video that I find annoying. Don't show these to me anymore. And it can take both inputs, positive signals, such as these host interactions and negative signals, and then surface you better content. And like all machine learning, like all good machine learning apps, the more you use it, the better it gets. So you might find in your first week of using TikTok, you're swiping a lot because they serve you garbage. <laughs> maybe a lot of the videos they have are like, I have no interest in this, right? But the more you use it, it gets really, really good. And we're trying to do a similar thing for podcasts. We want to entertain people. We want to educate people. We want to motivate people. And we're going to try to do that by discovering shows they might not have found on their own. Now, how deep are you going to do the matching. I'm assuming you're actually transcribing the podcast first so that your machine learning or your NLP technology can recognize what's in it. Because 
Otherwise, you'd be dependent completely on the uh, the podcast makers to write a good description or or whatever, or good show notes and attach it to it. I'm, is that what you're doing? You're actually going into the transcriptions and identifying what they are talking about, the subject matter. Uh, is that part of the process? We do look at that. We do look at transcriptions of the show. We look at the show notes. We look at the episode notes and we look at the transcription. But we also look at, we're doing this user clustering where we identify, there's a group of users who have the same weird sense of humor that you do, and they listen to the same comedians that you like. And given that you're similar to this group over here, here's a new show they listen to that you haven't discovered yet that they really enjoy. We're going to show you that same show. So user clustering is a big thing for us. We can find people, maybe it's someone in China, but we'll find some people that have the same sense of humor as you or the same eclectic interests as you. I follow on TikTok, for example, I follow bass players. I'm a very bad bass player. Okay. And... I really enjoy watching really good bass players. And I never went into TikTok and said, show me bass players, but it just tried a bunch of stuff. And it started realizing that I like bass players and there are other users like me who also like bass players. So my Instagram feed right now, I mean, it's, it doesn't dominate it, but every time I use Instagram, I find a really sick bass player, which is pretty cool. <laughs> I never really thought about discover honing. I don't know even what to call it. It's like honing in on your interests that is occurring on TikTok. Admittedly, I don't use it that much. I know of it, of course, because it's so popular. I just always assumed it was just dance videos and people making like little comedy no, sketches. Yeah, yeah. the dance video is what you're going to see the first couple of days, a few days, because those are very popular. Yeah. And some of those are entertaining. But over time, it's it throws in random stuff to try things out. One of the things that's really important in machine learning is you need to always have some level of randomness because if you simply show you what you already know that you like, you become an echo chamber and all you listen to, it's almost like politically, right? Yeah. If you're on the left or if you're on the right, if all it shows you is people who agree with you, it's not a very good experience. So they need to sprinkle in different things to try out. And if they notice that you're starting to use those things, then they will show you more things like that. So it's trying to find users who have tastes similar to you and we want to sprinkle in some new things as well. But we look at all those things. We look at your interaction. So again, do you click on the heart icon? Do you comment on it? Do you read the comments? Do you share it? Do you watch, do you listen to the show all the way through and looking at the text of that show, but then also finding other users who have similar taste to you. Now, how many people do you need to be observing behavior from in order for this to become relevant? Because when Moonbeaver starts, of course, it's not going to have every listener using this platform. How, what's the cohort you need to make it relevant? Yep. So with machine learning, based upon how difficult the problems you're working on, you often need, say, 10,000 or so users. And the more you get each order of magnitude, you get more and more accurate. Mm -hmm. So we're doing a lot of a lot of manual labor right now up front for Moonbeam. We have a number of curators that are going out and identifying interesting shows and identifying the most interesting snippet within a show. Because sometimes... Listening to show at the very beginning is not the most interesting part of it. And if we're giving you a swipe experience, we're going to like give you a taste of a show. It might be three and a half minutes in. There was something the host said that was particularly hilarious, particularly insightful. And so we have human curators that are going out to shows right now by category. And we're trying to find the most poignant uh, snippets and we're servicing those. Now, over time, 
I want those human employees that are doing the AI training for Moomium now to go away. We shouldn't need them once we have our first 10,000 users and then 100,000 users because observing user interaction will be more accurate than the human editors we have right now. No, that's pretty fascinating. So I, 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 straight up, I went to Moonbeam FM. I just, I've just signed up. When do you expect this to become generally available? We're, gonna, we're first doing a test flight build, and that's going to be in a couple of weeks. So I definitely will send that to you directly. We're probably going to be live in the App Store. My engineer is going to hate me answering this, but I'm just going to tell you when I think it's going to be the App Store. I would say early March will be live in the App Store. Very cool. That is actually quite the timing because our, uh, your episode will probably release right around then. That's fantastic. <laughs> no, this is going to be great. Um, I've always wondered about the discoverability of podcasts because I feel like when I use Spotify, I'll use Spotify, for example, because it sounds like you're going to be going head to head against them. When I go up against Spotify, I think it's pretty good at recommending me music because it's doing something, I think, similar to what you're doing. Hey, you listen to this artist. You might like this other artist. But I noticed that on the podcast side, it wasn't nearly as accurate in regards yeah, to providing think, recommendations. I mean, my favorite thing about Spotify is Discover Weekly. It's amazing how it can surface new content to me and how I can discover artists through that. I just love it. I would love to see a white paper by someone at Spotify to explain how Discover Weekly works because I think they've nailed it. I love Spotify for music. I don't like it for podcasts. That's... And I also think music and podcasts are so different. You should have two separate apps. It's like, I want a music app and I want a podcast app and because they do very different things. And I have different intent when I'm listening to podcasts versus listening to music. So I want an app that understands what my intent is. Dive a little deeper for you personally. What, is, what do you mean that you have a different intent? So... When I listen to podcasts, I want to be educated. I want to learn something about a topic interesting to me that I don't know much about. I want to learn more about. Uh, sometimes I want to be entertained. I want to hear a comedian or I want to be, I like podcasts where they interview musicians, actually. Mm -hmm. I'm a former musician and I, I'm, I love music. And so I love talking to musicians I like listening to authors. I like listening to books. Um, there's a podcast I like right now, Garrison Keeler, that I discovered on Moonbeam. It's a podcast. Apparently, it's popular. I had never heard of it before. It's called The Writer's Almanac. And they just talk about different books, which has been fascinating. So I think the podcast app, if it understands that what your intent is at that time, it can serve you content that matches that intent. You know, one of the things that I think about when you, the way you're describing it is if I think about my musical tastes, they've kind of stayed the same or relatively in the same domains since I was uh, like 13 years old. Cause I used to be a former guitar player myself. You know, I liked metal then. I still like it now. Like I still, that's what I listen to. And I also listen to, I would in general say music with more beats per minute than less. And that's hasn't changed, but my interests have changed widely since I was 13 years old, you know? Being 13, probably more focused on, you know, partying and having a good time. And then now I'm like interested, I'm 40, I'm interested in longevity. I'm interested in hearing the stories of people that are still doing really awesome human feats at the age of 70, you know, surfers that surf at 70, climbers and skiers that are still climbing and skiing at 80. I'm fascinated by these stories because I'm like, man, that's, that's pretty cool. And so intent, like you said, I think your intent or you tell me 
does it, a person's intent and interest, I feel like they change much more than their musical interests. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, for me, my, my music interests are pretty broad and somehow Spotify Discover Weekly allows me to sample different things each week. So I like EDM a lot. I like sort of R&B soul music. Um, I certainly like the classic rock that I grew up with. I mean, for me, I'm actually doing an art installation right now called 17, where I've been searching literally for one year for the most interesting photos of the musicians I listened to when I was 17 years old. And I'm mounting them on the wall of my apartment in New York. And I've been searching for years. I'm trying to find not the obvious photo you've seen of Jimi Hendrix, right. but an unusual photo of Jimi Hendrix. I'm basically taking all my favorite musicians from age 17 and um, stamping those. So I think some things you do get fixed. I think music, you're right, that when we were teenagers, we got obsessed with that. But for podcasts, I do think that you find new interests and interests change. And so from Moonbeam Discovery feature to work really well, we call the feature Beam. We beam you a show immediately. We have to try some new things and see how your tastes do evolve. Uh, obviously, very fascinating stuff. Paul, what I want to do now is I want our audience to get to know you outside of work. It is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Paul, this is where we ask you some questions. Some related to work, but a lot of times not related to work so that our audience could get to know you a little bit better. You ready? Let's do it. Let's All do right. it. So you've kind of already disclosed you're a traveler, you play bass, you're into EDM, you build software. What's another hobby that you have that you uh, that we don't know about yet? Uh, one thing that I, there's probably millions of people that developed this hobby this summer during COVID, which is simply gardening. I never had a garden before this year, but with the pandemic and isolation and quarantine and trying to like not go to restaurants, I tried to figure out how to be a little bit more self-sufficient. And I had a blast this summer growing my garden. And I'm already looking forward to uh, this coming summer to do something a bit different from what I did last year. Now, did you eat what you grow or I did. eat what you grew? I did. And how did it taste? I had some surprises. I think <laughs> I made a mistake of planning a little bit too much diversity. So- this coming summer, my garden is going to be for two things, for making salsa and for things for cocktails. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Chips and drinks, Paul's yeah. house. <laughs> when you play bass, what's, your, what's one of your favorite licks to play? Oh, man. Um, I'm not telling you my favorite bass players. My favorite player is Esperanza Spalding. Do you know her? I do not. She's amazing. She, I think she has four Grammys. She's probably about 30 years old. She's a full professor at Harvard, went to Berkeley School of Music. She's a uh, extraordinary vocalist and bass player. And I don't know who she's channeling when she plays, but it's just something magical to watch. So I like to watch her and see if I can play some of her music. I'm, I'm, again, I'm a former musician. I was a pretty serious musician in high school and college. I played a bunch of instruments. I wrote for a 15-piece jazz band. Um, bass is probably my weakest instrument, but I'm really drawn to it. I'm really drawn to good bass players. So she's probably my favorite player right now. Gotcha. Now you're also quite, I'm assuming quite the traveler. Yeah, I do about, uh, you know, 2020, the world is upside down, yeah, throw upside that down. <laughs> but pre pre 2020, I do really close to hundred thousand miles of flights a year. So wow. I travel twice a month, one short trip and one longer trip. I'm obsessed. And I think, 
as I get older, I don't want to wait till I retire, whatever that means. I want to start picking up the pace and traveling more and more. And last month, I mean, it wasn't that exotic. It was simply Miami, but just being from remote for a month was really amazing for me. Now I want to try it in Tokyo and Buenos Aires and Nairobi and different cities around the world. Now, are you mostly a city person or do you travel to like rural areas? I like the cities. I like the energy, the diversity, the languages, the food, the museums. I tend to spend a little bit more time in cities. Fair enough. Yeah, my, big, my big rural trip, I mean, I guess this is a city as well. My, uh, my big remote trip is I like going to Burning Man a lot. And it's kind of like a small city. Uh, that's a wild experience out in the middle of the desert now i have never been to burning man although i have seen the footage that comes from it that is just basically a party of i don't know it's basically what a three-day party four-day party it's a week it's a week week. yeah it's it's amazing (laughs) it's really fun and then for yourself you know you have such a in you got such diverse interests you continue to work and stay hungry uh, you mentioned before that earlier in the podcast, you said you think you're going to be building companies till you're 90. Yeah, I really do. I really do. I mean, I want to, at some point, I would love to create an app a month. Like I want to challenge myself. And I mean like good apps, not, not a toy, but I'd like to create a good app a month and really to be feeding a number of development teams that are all working on these apps. So one team working on the podcast app, another team working on a fitness app, another team working on a game. I just want to have lots of apps always in development. Well, you know, I said a little bit earlier when I, uh, you know, I'm currently interested in people that are able to do and accomplish things for a really long, sustained period of time. One of the things that's common among everyone is they have this, like, I would say, I don't know how to best describe it. It's almost like a maniacal interest. Like they're maniacally interested in accomplishing specific things. So for, you know, the skiers that ski till they're 80, it sounds like you're maniacally interested in building these apps. I find it super fascinating. Where will you get your inspiration when it comes to the problems to solve? Um, A lot of them are going to be things that I bump into. So I'll tell you about a problem I've been thinking a lot about recently. I'm a pretty active angel investor. I've invested in 53 companies. And I have to tell you that every time I have to wire money to a startup, to an entrepreneur, I just hate the process. <laughs> it's so insecure. Like a lot of this happens by email. Or when I bought yeah. my apartment in New York, the realtor like sent all my information by email, including my social security number to one of the forms. And wiring money needs to be a lot more secure than it is today and a lot easier So this is a problem that I've been thinking about just because it's so painful for me, having written 53 wires over the last couple of years. And so I've been thinking about a better way to do that. So stay tuned. I might, there might be some things I'm doing in that space. Paul, I appreciate you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing all the interest that you have and the way you see the world. I think it's been pretty fascinating. And hey, listen, people, if you're out there in the financial services industries, watch out, Paul. Sounds like Paul's coming for you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, Albert. Appreciate it. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.